Hello, hello. Welcome to the Nomi Key Show. Hi, everyone. Um, this is going to be a little bit of a different show today. I was uh, very sick yesterday and I did not intend to not have a show yesterday. So I just want to say thank you to our very loyal audience and our moderators uh, and everybody who works the algorithms and is in the chat. Thank you for showing up. I'm so sorry for not having a show yesterday. I had a horrible migraine. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. I thought it was going to go away. Uh, I, I basically called it a half an hour before the show. So thank you for our team as well for producing a beautiful show. And for our guests, I'm so sorry. We're hoping to get you rebooked. On that note, um, I want to talk a little bit of business with you guys because the show is going to be taking a new format during the holidays, uh, but it's it's okay. It's okay. We're still going to have a show every day at three o'clock. So um Starting the 23rd of, of December, 24th of December, the, I guess, Christmas Eve, we are going to be doing our 3 p.m. show until January 4th. We're still going to be doing it. We're doing exclusive interviews, though. So we're not doing our traditional show with the monologue and, and the panelists, mainly because we believe here at TNS that our team deserves a holiday. Don't you believe in that? Aren't we leftists? But I will be doing on my own. <laughs> handling my own technical side. I will be doing regular evening lives. Um, I'm going to try to set up a schedule. I will be sharing that with you uh, by next week. So stay tuned for that. But uh, it's it's we're still going to have the show um, Tuesday through Friday. It's just going to be a little bit of a different format. Uh, we have to feed the YouTube algorithm. We learned that just from being off air yesterday. And if you want to know more about the YouTube algorithm and you want to hear an exclusive interview about it, I actually just finished up an interview uh, about YouTube's algorithm, which is going to be on our patron. Uh, so if you're a page, patron, go to, if you're not a patron, go to patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We have an exclusive interview about censorship, how uh, tech monopolies are affecting the, the, the ecosystem of information, and how a lot of this is kind of fueled through exploitation um, of talent. And so we're all addicted to doing live streams for 12 hours long or an hour, whatever it is, because we have to feed the algorithm. And that's why we're extremely grateful to you guys who tune in every single day because uh, you're not on air, but you're passionate about having left uh, hosts and you're passionate about having left channels and different forms of communication to take on uh, the corporate media. One more piece of information uh, announcement that I have to make is we are starting... Hear that? Drum roll, please. We are starting a book club. The Nomi Key Show is starting a book club. Uh, you can become a member of the book club everywhere, for everything from one book a month to four books a month. You will receive the books in the mail at the beginning of the month. And then whether it's uh, one book a month or four books a month, you're going to have a regular conversation, a book club conversation with special guests, sometimes the author, sometimes guests who have opinions on the book. And we're going to talk through the book. And our first book is our next guest. He authored this book. It is Thomas Paine and the Promise of America by Harvey K. And Harvey K, Professor Harvey K, has offered 10 books to us for the first 10 book club members that join. You will get a discount on that. I will, I'll, I'll send you some extra swag. Uh, not only do you receive the books every month, but you receive swag from us and exclusive interviews. It's a really great value. Uh, for the patron program. So you can be a patron and receive all the other benefits and exclusive interviews, but this one is specifically geared around the book club. So you won't have the regular show. You'll just have the book club conversations and access to the books. I love this idea. We're partnering with different publishers. Uh, so we're going to have special access to, to the authors that author these books. And um, we're going to go a little bit deeper than our regular interviews uh, that we do on our show with authors. With that, if you are not already, join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. You'll find those book club offers. You'll also find the different tiers to become a patron. It's the holiday season. It's a great time to join uh, end of the year giving to your friends and family. We've said we want to indoctrinate uh, our, our allies, our family members, and our friends who may not fully be on our side yet. This is a great way to do so. And you can actually provide them with the materials. That's how you do it. All right. We will be right back. Quick, 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 quick little break with Professor Harvey Kay. 
Master Harvey K, of course, is, I'm reading this straight from your book because I want to give one of the quotes from your book, is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Social Change and Development at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. We know that, right? We've had you on a million times. But I want to read a quote. That's your old title because you're emeritus now, right? Well, it's also Democracy and Justice Studies. We changed the program under my leadership. Oh, right. Yes, you told me this. Uh, I love this quote about this book that's our first book club book. Uh, (laughs) It's a quote from Katrina Vandenhoevel, who is, of course, uh, from The Nation. Must reading for today's aspiring democratic rebels and radicals. This is how you start, right? All right. There is a lot to talk about every time you come on, and and we want to frame this all around uh, Joe Biden's administration, what kind of administration is taking shape. We had hopes maybe six, eight weeks ago that we could pressure him to bring on some labor leaders or uh, to really push a form of a of, of a new deal, a newer deal, uh, a less racist new deal, a greener new deal uh, in the, this White House and using this moment, this crisis, this economic crisis, this housing crisis that we're facing, uh, this racial justice uh, moment that we're also in to pressure Biden. But it seems like he's just um, listening to Wall Street and the McKinsey executives and consultants. So I guess the question I have for you now is if, if, does, first of all, does Biden still have a shot to be an FDR? And second, if he's not an FDR, who is he? I'm leaning towards Hoover because he doesn't talk about this housing crisis. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, I'm going to say that we all missed you yesterday, and it's very nice to see you back, okay? That's first of all. Thank you. Um, the other thing I'm going to say is that whatever I say right now, I mean sincerely, but I have to tell you, five minutes before I came on, Somebody on Twitter, a friend of mine back from back in New Jersey, sent me a link to an NPR story. I, I, I'm not saying there's any truth in this. I'm just telling you what was reported, that the Biden administration information is inspired by the FDR legacy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, let me just say that that can mean a lot of things, okay? One of them it can mean is that if you ask Joe Biden who FDR was, he can tell you it means Franklin Delano Roosevelt and leave it at that, okay? The second possibility is that they have a compl- is that they think they've got an FDR frame in their heads, but actually all they have really is a kind of top-down elitist rendition of social change, which we've seen from, we saw it from, from Clinton in the worst form, okay? We saw it from Obama in a very neoliberal form again. Um, so it, it's, it's hard to know what that means, and I'll try to listen to it and, and, and make sense of it. But frankly, you know, six months ago, I was asked on Rising if there was any chance that Biden could become an FDR. And I said, look, based on Biden's record, there is very little chance that he could rise to that kind of presidency. And in fact, if the DNC... And if the likes of Obama or the Clintons or Clyburn of South Carolina had wanted an FDR-like presidency, then they shouldn't have mobilized to block Bernie Sanders. That, that's, the, that's key. Now, having said that, okay, I mean, we've looked at this, this for the formation of his cabinet. We saw that the d- defense and to some extent intelligence and, and related folk are essentially sort of an old Obama-Clinton-like cohort with some very suspicious ties into the defense establishment and you know, serving as, as, as conduits between the defense industries and the defense establishment. So there's, I don't quite see what kind of new initiatives there'll be in foreign policy. And everyone, you know, the, the established media or mainstream media, they all thought it was just wonderful that somebody of Kerry's stature was placed in the role of what, environmental diplomat or, or, or something to that effect. Yeah, someone who's never, ever, ever tweeted once about environmental policies or climate right. change. Like, are you kidding me? His idea of the environment, which I don't know if anyone, everyone will get, is to go hunting in his L.L. Bean gear. You may recall that from, uh, from an earlier campaign. Okay, now when you move over to the domestic side, there's, there's not a lot of, look, they're going to offer us, they're going to offer us a crew of faces that are probably not necessarily representative of America, but actually representational. 
kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they're going to have all of the bases covered regarding race and ethnicity. And, you know, not all of those folks by any means represent any kind of progressive politics. Obviously, the one I think of most of all is the, is the woman near attendant who's going to head the Office of Management and Budget. Okay. The, the fellow who probably offers the greatest hope for a voice in the cabinet that will speak to possibilities of an FDR-like sword is Basera of no. California. Have I got the name wrong? Sorry. No, I said, it's Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> I saw some great lines on Twitter, you know, like, I think it was Matt Leck of, well, you know Matt very well. From, from the majority of I think he said, if you think Pete Buttigieg is a better will make a better secretary of transportation than a bus driver, <laughs> you, you have to think again, you know, something like that. And what, he didn't mean that insulting to the bus driver. What he well, meant is that at least a bus driver knows about transportation. That and there's of, an article going around about how, you oh, know, there is. from from bus driver, yeah. We'll, we'll, okay. we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later okay, on the but, show. So the bus, Sarah. Now, the other thing is, sorry, I'll stop if you want, but I'll just- Javier Becerra from California, uh, we'll just have to- Who's committed, who has been committed to Medicare for all, and also was apparently a voice inside of the Obama administration who was pushing in the kinds of directions progressive definitely, definitely. But, but here's my thing, just one, one little pause here. There are you know, dozens and dozens of signatures, I don't even know what the last count is, on uh, Medicare for All, co-sponsors. But that doesn't mean they're advocates for it. I mean, uh, Kamala Harris is, is one of the, the co-sponsors of Medicare for All. Cory Booker is. I mean, these aren't people who have gone to bat for Medicare for All. Uh, some of these people, including Cory Booker, have taken pharmaceutical money. And now he does not. Let's just make that clear after pushback. But just because you're for Medicare for All, because it's, you live in a blue state and that's a popular item to be for, does not mean you're going to go to bat for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in fact, if you, re if you read the platform that Joe Biden actually issued, if I'm not mistaken, I don't believe they use the term Medicare for All, but they imply moving towards universal health care. But by the way, I want to make one thing clear. Moving towards universal health care, I believe, was on the uh, Democratic platform <laughs> ever since... 1944. Okay. So if, if the Democrats had wanted to truly fight for it, we would have seen it fought for many times over. In fact, the, the only president of the 40s after Roosevelt who, who argued for, med, for universal health care was Harry Truman. And then, not a Democrat, but Richard Nixon. Okay. I mean, he, he offered a plan that would have involved some kind of universal health care. And the Democrats at that time balked at, at his plan because I think they thought it was too cheap, something like that. Um, but health insurance companies weren't the, the monoliths that they are today. I mean, we have to be clear that what stands in the way now are industries that are located in many of these, these the states. I mean, healthcare workers are the largest worker, workforce in America. And, and so it, it, is, it is quite, you know, if we're going to be specific, they're, they're there are industries that are blocking this and they're using the lawmakers uh, that they have basically paid off for decades to do so. Was yeah. that in existence as much in, in the Nixonian era, in the Truman era? Well, there's always been big, yes. I mean, there were big drug companies, clearly, because if you remember back in the 19, well, you wouldn't remember, but I'm old enough to remember as a, as a young teenager, that there was the tragic story of, of thalidomide babies and how much drug companies at that time were actually covering up their malpractices. And they were powerful at the time. But the, but the story was so visually horrific as it appeared in Life or Look magazine that literally even, you know, the, the Democratic Senate came after them. That, it was that kind of thing. So, but what, I was, what I'm gonna get at is this. The Democratic Party, seriously speaking, is not to be trusted on this question of universal health care because it has been in and on the agenda for so many years. And they, last year, even those who said they endorsed Medicare for all, you know, turned to Bernie and said, do you want to bankrupt this country? Bernie, of course, missed a beat and, of course, should have turned to them and said, what are you guys, Republicans? I mean, he should have just right. nailed them on the occasion, okay? But moreover, the other reason, so, so there, it's been on the agenda, the Democrats forswore it, and then we've been in this pandemic, I'm, I'm saying the obvious, we've been in this pandemic for, let's say, nine months, but it's actually, mm -hmm. the elite knew for longer than that, but it's nine months, 
And the only person who has really to this day, in the Senate at least, really come out still arguing for Medicare for all or universal health care, to my knowledge, aggressively, is Bernie Sanders. Okay, And maybe others who will align with him. But seriously speaking, the Democrats have, look, I mean, we'll find out soon enough, but it is the case that we can't wait to find out soon enough. It is the case that the labor, the, the better angels of the labor movement and the organizations of the left that exist out there, mostly as lobbying forces, but with some degree of grassroots support, obviously grassroots support because they have memberships. Or unions, yeah. These are the kinds of, thi- these are the kinds of groups that must coalesce and start they don't, have, they don't have to attack the Biden administration. We'll leave that to the McConnell and Trump folks. But they sure as hell have to offer a direct and aggressive and loud challenge right. to them uh, regarding Medicare for all. I could talk about other things which I think are, are not necessarily as pressing, but are equally important if the Democrats don't want to get their asses kicked in 2022. So, so that's, you know, that's partly an electoral argument. And I, I do want to talk about this with you because... Uh, I'm, you know, there's been this whole hullabaloo over over whether or not the squad should introduce, uh, you know, we should push Medicare for all for a floor vote and in exchange for voting for Nancy Pelosi. And, uh, you know, there was a a Jimmy Dore campaign, uh, Jimmy Dore comedian. (laughs) 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 I mean, nothing wrong with the comedians, but I, you know, I, I do value pushback from people like Matt Stoller, who's actually worked in Washington, understands how the institutions work and is extremely critical of them and independent of those institutions. And I think yeah. that takes a lot of courage. So, and say to Dave Sirota, you know, has worked in Washington has also been a reporter uh, for years. So uh, my perspective on this, and it, it, it's, it's not as loud, isn't so much like, is it feasible you and I both know that when you're in Congress, when you're in the Senate, and this is our criticism six, seven months back of, of Senator Sanders in not pushing back enough, was that I, you know, we kept coming back to he is not running as Bernie Sanders, a presidential candidate. He is running as Senator Bernie Sanders, who, if he loses, still has to go back to the Senate. And if he's the lone voice in the Senate that's really purely left, he might lose committee appointment, whatever. Um, uh, the budget, being budget chairs is, is tremendous and it's huge. Yes. So we're not operating in a campaign world right now. We're not even operating in a movement world when we're dealing with the electeds who are in the institutions right. where the rules are set and the power structures are set by people who have way more power. And that's why the squad keeps saying we have to grow, we have to grow so that we can they can push back internally and have some leverage. But right now they don't have the leverage. The movement on the outside, their voices on the outside, that is leverage in some ways, but it is not, it is not going to get Medicare for all to a vote on day one, and if so, it'll lose. So, so my perspective on this, and I, and you just sort of brought this up, and I think, you know, okay, well, if if, if you're not going to do it, and and all the Jimmy Dore stands are going to poo-poo us for poo-pooing him, my perspective is, well, where is the leverage? And I have always felt, and I think this is something you and I agree on, the the only undeniable leverage that the left has right now is not through electoral organizations, which might threaten to challenge these lawmakers, which is a good thing, right? It is through the labor movement. Yes. Pandemic, no pandemic, economic crisis or no economic crisis. Every Democrat in this country, even in the Rahm Emanuel's, has to work with labor. Even if they don't like labor, even if they want to privatize this country, they still have to negotiate with labor. And of course, labor, you know, not all unions are the same. But if we start with our allies in the labor movement, the Sarah Nelsons of the world, uh, the Ken Diamondsteins from the postal workers, uh, CWA, Teachers Union, uh, NNU. I would hope National Nurses Union. Uh, yep, and NNU, CNA exactly. in California. Right. And CNA. They are our allies, I mean, especially NNU with Medicare for All. And then they can leverage their union power towards the more conservative union leaders so that universally or potentially universally, there is real pressure on the Joe Biden administration, which has ignored labor in this administration, in his, in his cabinet picks, like literally ignored labor. Yeah. And, you know, let me say two things and then come back to the issue. If This is on the issue, but I, I want to get this out. First of all, I want to say very clearly, I have never watched Jimmy Dore ever, nor have I shopped in Walmart just for the record. Okay. And but you are a big left. You watch lefty media. 
I do, but I, yeah. I have never, I only know Jimmy Dore from his days at the Young Turks. That's it, okay? So I, I don't know what he's been doing and saying up fr- you know, out there. But I can tell you that he obviously isn't paying attention because if he was paying attention, he would realize that Bernie Sanders in the last three weeks sent out at least two mass mailings to people who he has on his list, and I'm one of them, laying out the agenda he intends to pursue and is very much upfront that universal health care is on that agenda. Now, for Jimmy Dore to go after the squad, sorry, I just have to say this, is, is utterly cheap and utterly ridiculous. They have to first figure out who makes up the new squad and they have to be in, they have to be in position to act in those terms. And also to see to what extent the progressive caucus will actually live up to its name, the progressive caucus. So, you know, I mean, I don't know what he's up to other than maybe to build his audience, period. Okay. But the other thing I want to say, Justin, and which sounds like I'm going to endorse what he was calling for is the first time I went on Bill Moyer's show. And I think I've mentioned this to you back in 2008, Bill and I were talking about Thomas Paine, the book that you were holding in your hand before. And, but we got into a lot of things, some of it on tape that was broadcast nationally and some of it not. And one of the things that I do believe I said it on national television as the tape uh, provided is that when the Democrats won the House and the Senate in 2006, not 2008, but 2006, um, Nancy Pelosi is noted as having said something to the effect when a journalist said to her, what are you going to do? She said, well, I'll give you three words, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Well, right, exactly. Your, your face says it all, okay? But the other thing is, is that I said, well, whatever they do, this is what I was telling Bill on TV, I said, whatever they do, it seems to me now would be the time for Democrats to take a sense of the Senate or whatever they call it in the House and have a vote going on record that the Democratic Party is committed to universal health care. And, and leave it at that, for the purpose of letting Americans know that when the majority of Americans want something, the Democrats will fight for it. And that way, you could have had a long-term pursuit of this kind of agenda. That's just for the record, okay? Now, the, the fact is, I, I think I lost the, the specifics of your question, actually. But, but the fact is that we're now, we're now at a moment where you and I, I'm sure, have shared this, this question of who's going to be the Secretary of Labor, since we, we were clearly not in favor of Bernie taking that position. And I frankly, I haven't even heard the names of the people that I were hoping, I was hoping might be under consideration. So I may have left your question. I apologize very much. But well, the question was, was specifically, it's not just the Secretary of Labor. I mean, labor transcends the Labor Department. Labor, you know, having people on who respect labor to be uh, you know, in any, any of, uh, first off, uh, the, the, the near attendance position. I mean, she's a union buster. It's, 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 it's an offense. It's, you know, we're going into, we're, we're embarking on a crisis that we're in the midst of, but we don't really understand the numbers yet. And it's, it's offensive to the American people who are about to be evicted, who, you know, are, are stealing you, baby wife. formula and food to be putting people on in an administration in, in a cabinet that are not just out of touch, but have been at war with working people. And I think that's what's just really um, crushing to me is, you know, some of this I think is, is I, I'm looking at labor and saying, well, where are you? Where It's one thing to have a democratic party that's not running as Democrats, that's not yeah. running against Republicans. Like, when did that start yeah. happening? You know, we even did that with, with Nixon. I mean, we still, the Democratic Party still wasn't afraid of being the Democrats. They weren't afraid of saying, Republicans, you bad, we good. <laughs> <laughs> now it's like, Republicans, let's go meet and cut up, you know, cuddle up and have like eggnog together and leftists, <laughs> you're bad, we good. Um, that's, 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 that's one thing. But the other thing is labor, I'm like, where are you? Well, yes. Of course, there are some voices. Right. I don't want to. Yeah. I don't no, want to no, be critical. That's where we were. That's where we yeah. were before, and it really is. It is the case that look, I, I, I belong to the American Federation of Teachers. Um, I, I think that there is a progressive coalition of labor unions that could be put together. Okay, and it also happens. This is interesting. If you think about the unions that you named before. They are all at critical 
the old word was nodes. They're at critical positions inside of this, uh, not whether it's the economy or the society, it doesn't matter, inside of the United States. So we know the kind of threat that when Nelson said, Sarah Nelson said, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to go on strike if you don't end this government shutdown, okay? It's right. not safe to fly, period, okay? We know that, we know the threat in the time of pandemic that the National Nurses Union going out would represent. And they surely would do it in a humanitarian way, so of I'm course. not, okay? Yeah. But the fact is we know what that represents. Look, parents, parents are so eager to get their kids back into school right now that basically they ought to show their support by saying, and we'll vote for any school referendum you want you put out, right? Yeah. And it, the fact is the teachers might well want to make it clear that this country needs a stronger national relations board and a bill that permits public employees to, in other words, lay out these things, labor, yeah. put Joe Biden in a position that he claims he already is, that he claims he supports, but make him endorse these things. Let, let him start saying, we're like, if he, hypothetically, if he brings in a secretary of labor, I don't know, have they done it today? And I don't know it sometime mm-hmm. the next Interior week. Interior was just named uh, Deb Holland. Oh, oh yes, right. Then let him say, and these are the kinds of things that we hope to see pursued. Let him say those mm-hmm. things. Right now, and forgive me if I haven't listened to all these speeches that he's made, it strikes me he's celebrating the diversity, okay, rather than the, rather than the cause, you might say, what, they, what this will mean, mm-hmm. because this is the marching orders we're going to give them. I mean, I, sorry, that, that, I'm getting very, very exasperated with all of this, because some weeks ago, you may remember, I think I actually said I didn't think we needed to go to war with the Biden administration right away because we needed to see what kind of signals we're going to get. And I've definitely changed my mind. I don't think it's a matter of going to war in that sense, but it clearly is a matter of creating some kind of unity for the prog- among progressive unions and these labor left groups. And by the way, the, labor, the, the, the left groups are doing what they can. They are lobbying and they are pressing. But what I want to know, and this is what I've been talking to various people among them about, is what can we do to get you aligned with the labor movement? Right. The biggest that's, problem with the Democratic Party is that they've got these interests. I'll narrow it. You know, we used to call these things single issues when we yeah. talked about the right wing. These are these are single issues. They all the environment, uh, this, 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 and that. Labor represents American working people uh, in all their diversity. Okay, they make things happen. I mean, these these groups need to intersect. And by the way, I don't blame the lobby groups and with grassroots support. I'm damn it. I'd I'd like to get on the phone and ask Richard Trumka, the president of the AFL-CIO, what the hell are you doing? We should be hearing from you. You should be lining up labor leaders with you to say these are the kinds of things we expect. And I want to warn everyone that when it came to the Obama administration, labor went silent. Instead of challenging Obama, because maybe they were afraid to look like they were challenging the first black president, but they went silent. And when he was interviewed, Trump, regularly in the first few years of the Obama administration, he would not say a bad word about that administration, despite the fact they had abandoned the promise to labor of enacting the Employee Free Choice Act. Well, labor can't sit around waiting anymore. They've got to make themselves heard or they'll be in even worse shape. When Republicans come back into power and make an effort to pass a national right to work law. And 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 for, for those of you guys who don't remember, Obama was was quiet when Wisconsin was under attack. I, I mean, yeah. and that's there's there's no I don't I don't know. There, there really hasn't been a Democrat in the presidency who has ever treated labor that way. Am I wrong to say that? You mean in, a, you mean in, a, in, a, in an embracing-like fashion or like we're in this together kind of way? Or no, no, no. Mean, I mean the opposite, that Obama oh, was so hands-off. Ignore labor. Ignore as, as labor and, and, and went to war with them. I mean, whether it's Arne Duncan running the education department, trying to That's privatize. Right. Or bringing in, you know, uh, Obama staffers and former uh, 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 campaign managers like David Pluff going to lobby for Uber. I mean, this is not... A, the Democratic Party is supposed to be the Labor Party, and 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 I think what what I'm really like you said that Richard Trumka like the the quiet, they're just quiet. And listen, forget about the politics. 
just forget about the politics. The leverage the left has, and I say this to left groups too, the leverage that we have, the only leverage we have on the table right now is through labor. Labership is membership-based. Labership is our frontline workers. Labor is majority people of color, women of color, immigrants. You know, you want to talk about the domestic workers? And the Democrats owe whatever elections they have won to labor canvassing. That's right. I mean, that's the case. They owe it. Look at at Florida, right? Florida, it just shows you how powerful labor is. Labor was able to organize around a $15 minimum wage, and yet the the Democratic Party couldn't win in Florida. So the leftist ideas were winning, not just because people like them, but because there was real organizing behind them. In in Arizona, uh, they challenged, uh, they they basically have a tax the rich uh, law now to fund public schools which were under attack by the Koch brothers. Right. That was labor organized. That is because of the uprisings in Arizona. So the change that's happened in this country historically has always come from the base, the membership base of labor. And I'm, 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 I'm baffled that we're going into this economic crisis in which how many people who are going to be working members of these industries who could potentially lose their jobs, but who haven't yet are going to lose their homes. Where is the Democratic par- Party for them right now? Where are the labor le- majority of labor leaders? Let's just keep saying that over and over because like we said, there are some very good labor leaders that are out there yelling into the desert, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, right. yeah, well, and everyone should know that this coming year is a big year for labor. And I'm going to make it clear. I don't, and the reason I say that is a year from now, I think it's next October, maybe September, will be the next election for the president of the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. And And what does that that mean? What does that represent? Okay, so the AFL-CIO is literally the the confederation of of all significant labor unions. And the president is basically the spokesperson for labor in the United States. And there's, you know, right now, I think the competition has been viewed as that between Two good people, Liz Schuler, I believe, is, is her name, and who I think is also also happens to be originally from Oregon. I may be wrong about that. And Sarah Nelson, who, by the way, if you, any progressive you speak to will tell you their candidate is Sarah Nelson, unreservedly. Okay, so so I can tell you that this is a big year coming up, and to what extent will 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 Joe Biden will try to apply any pressure to that? I have no idea. Um, to what extent he encourages working people to think once again in terms of labor. I mean, I I would just like to hear him speak to the question. I don't want to see him meet with some labor people they've rounded up to be, you know, soft on the Biden-Harris team. I actually want to hear Joe Biden talk to American working people. And maybe, you know, it's funny. I'll use my FDR hat right now. Franklin Roosevelt, back in the early 30s, everyone said, you know, well, it was Robert Wagner, the senator from New York, who was the one who really pushed labor's agenda. But the fact is that FDR embraced it. Whenever he was requested by Wagner and pushed, he embraced it. And it got to the point where the AFL-CIO, well, then it was the AFL, it was a selected union. CIO was just in formation. They actually issued a poster. I, I wish I had it here to hold up. Somewhere it's here. This poster said, your president wants you to join a union. And you can, it's, and I'm, it's never clear to me that Roosevelt said it exactly like that, but he talked regularly about the rights of working people and he never, ever denied saying it. So it would, wouldn't it be great if Joe Biden said, yeah, I want to be like FDR. I want you to join a labor union. But, you know, that's a fantasy. Well, well, you know, just just to kind of take this full circle, um, Joe Biden comes from the credit card state where all the tax loopholes are, and FDR came from a state that, you know, even to this day in New York is uh, there's a, there's there's the the organ. I mean, it's probably one of the states that has the strongest labor in the country, if not the state that has the strongest labor in existence. Um, you know, probably others. That doesn't mean that they're not that, that labor doesn't go to war with our governor regularly, or doesn't go to war, yeah. or you know, maneuvers behind the scenes, or does whatever they do. Uh, but you know, this is um, you know, I think this is a big part of it. Um, I I I want to wrap up with um, two two thoughts here. First off, this housing crisis to me, I'm I'm just kind of 
in shock by- oh, sorry, I didn't get, yeah. No, 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 it's okay. Because, um, you know, Jimmy Dore, who I've worked with and I'm friends with, and I, I like a lot. I just think fundamentally, when I look to strategy about how to push Washington, I look to people who have organized, mm-hmm. <laughs> who yeah. have built uh, movements, who yeah. have power mapped. I mean, Sarah, and I, when I want to know where the leverage is, I look to Jane McAlevey and Sarah Nelson. Jane McAlevey, yeah. of course, has worked with unions and fought union busting and taught workers how to pr- protect themselves from union busting all over the globe and organize. And right. she does this you know, amazing power mapping. And, and Sarah Nelson, of course, uses power and leverage like no other, I, don't, I think, sitting leader today anywhere, right. Right. including lawmakers. And so I look to them and I say, what, what are they focusing on? But right now, you know, even Medicare for all, which is going to be a much longer fight we saw how it became the critical issue of the Democratic primary, um, and there's a lot of propaganda that's pushed out for it. I mean, this is this is a real fight, and you have to be willing to go down. I mean, listen, healthcare was the critical piece of legislation that Obama uh, accomplished, right? Obamacare, and then it became the fight for the next, you know, several years, like really the last decade. But it was also, not a good, it was not a good bill. Exactly. But that, that's also the other point. It's also something because it was the one thing he accomplished, he's not going to let go of. So right. it's not just that you're fighting the right. You're fighting the neoliberals who are like, that, no, that was our legacy of our administration. You're not going to stand in the way yeah, of our the, legacy. You, you and I know there was the story that basically Obama and Biden were going to block Medicare for all because they thought it would, it would literally override, shadow and drive out any memory of Obamacare. Exactly. Which is their key piece of legislation. So this, this, that is going to be a long, a long, hard fight. And it, it's, it, I think it's very doable. Um, but like starting January 1st, there's going to be tens of millions of people potentially evicted from their homes. Um, and they're going to be saved by maybe $600. Um, you, can't, you can't rent an apartment in Wisconsin yes. in a working class neighborhood for $600 a month. So, I mean, exactly. Now, this is, this is the point. The moment's leverage, labor's leverage, I think, is really fighting these like existential things that are happening in 13 days. Um, and so why I think there's a potential of a Hoover president is just, I mean, when is the last time Biden talked about the eviction crisis that's, that's, that we're facing? Not just, by the way, if he wants to like warm up to business, it's not just human beings being evicted from their homes. It's small businesses who are losing uh, their, 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 their businesses. I mean, not just their businesses, but like they're not able to pay the rent and they haven't been for the last six months, eight months. Yeah. I, let me put it this way. The next time I hear Joe Biden say he wants to, to redeem the soul of America, I, I'm going to, I think I'm going to lose it. Okay. I want him to, I, I want him to talk about the fact that you can't, you can't live on soul alone. Okay. You, you, food, clothing, and shelter. The right. basics. Don't we all learn that? I think when we're like six years old, right. it's, it's time for him to speak to that and talk about, talk about the wonders that, of the new year as we fight the pandemic and we keep people in their homes by That's way right. of federal executive orders and other kinds of initiatives if Congress fails to act. And on that note, if we want to empower the squad to have leverage, we have to make sure that unions have their back. The squad yeah, can't just yes. go in there on a suicide mission. That's how right. you immediately right. lose your power. Right. And you remember the we... term political capital? Yes. There you go. If, if, how dare the Jimmy Dore ask them to expend what political capital they have right now on a waste of time mission? And, and let's just be very clear. We're not saying Medicare for all is a waste of time. Not it's at very, all. But you have not to build, build. You have to build your coalitions. That's right. You know, when you run yeah. for office, I've you know, as I've run for office before, I'm giving away some of the the tricks, right? So, so when you decide you're going to announce, you you do all the background coalition building beforehand. You know, Nina Turner announced just a couple of days ago, and dozens of folks came out and endorsed her immediately. 
you know, most of them probably really were going to endorse her anyways, but she made sure she had her ducks in a row. Their campaign made sure so that on day one, they were able to have a huge fundraising day because that's the biggest fundraising day usually of of a campaign so that they could hire the staff and build out, but also that they had the protection, the endorsers around there, uh, around her so that they can go in there and fight and, and people have her back. And also potentially block out any uh, potential opposition. That's, you need these coalitions to be able to succeed. So if we want to be strategic and if we want to win, why would we literally set ourselves up for a suicide mission? And that I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned about. You know, I get criticized for being on the Democratic Reform Commission, which reformed the, you know, set forth reforms the party. We knew we were very much in the minority. So we went in and said, what leverage do we have? Well, the yeah. leverage was I was hosting a show on, you know, I was on TYT. I brought in the TYT audience to pay attention for the first time ever. And, um, and, 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 you know, we, we obviously amplified a lot of what was happening so that we were able to pass a few things, but we knew very well, we were not going to go in and get major wins. So if you know what your map is, when you go in, then you're more prepared. But if, if you just go in blindly or if you yell at your only allies who are part of institutions, I don't understand how that's strategic. And so you lose that fight and then you miss an opportunity to have a fight about evictions, about you know bringing in more than $600 of relief or whatever existential crises we're facing. And I'm saying this because I know that there are trolls in the chat right now trolling. And I want you guys, you know, if, if whoever you are, if we wanna win, we have to pick our battles and when to do them and how to build the coalitions to do so. And if you're a leftist, leftists should not be excluded from labor. Labor is our way in, in my opinion. And I think that's kind of what Harvey K has been saying as well. Is that right? Well, for what it's worth in historical terms, because I know you've got a panel that you, you need to get to. Okay. And then I, you need I to want, jump in the chat. Okay. I want to, then I'll jump in the chat. That's right. Take on the trolls if I have to. But but, but the thing is that if everyone, if you look back at American history or world history, the way in which democracy was created and advanced was not by something called the middle class. It was definitely not created by what we, what many of Marxists call the bourgeoisie, or in any case, political and economic elites. It was created by struggles of working people in all their diversity, not necessarily always aligned, but in every generation, it was working people who made things happen. And I, we can't, I can't emphasize enough the imperative that left organizations reach out and encourage labor to be more vocal and perhaps take the lead yeah. in advancing the progressive agenda. Become a book club member. Learn how to be a radical rebel. I couldn't put this thing down. The story of Thomas Paine, then and now, for the man and his ideas, and very much alive today, stirs the heart, moves the mind, and routes the demons of despair. The best political book of the year. That was Bill Moyers. <laughs> and sometime, it is our first book club. The story of how Bill and I connected. Okay. Next show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, Professor Harvey K. Thank Happy you, holidays. Uh, go too, become too. a book club member right now. You will get a copy. Your first book will be free because if you're one of the first 10 members, because Professor Harvey K. has gifted us with his uh, Thomas Paine book, The Promise of America. Because I love the book. folks in the chat and I want them to have heard it first. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. All right. We will be right back with our phenomenal panel, Rep Rab and Arun Chadri are joining us to talk about the drama of today. Rep Rab representing the 200th district of Pennsylvania, the most progressive district in Pennsylvania that won Joe Biden the election. Uh, so progressives did turn out and organize. And of course, Arun Chowdhury, who is a political filmmaker. He was the uh, head videographer, the first videographer, excuse me, for the White House under the Obama administration. And he was Bernie Sanders' creative director in 2016. And he's Lev from Berlin where unions are uh, still a thing. <laughs> unions are still a thing, yeah. Based on our last Although, segment. The, you know, the big nut that they haven't cracked here is the same one they haven't cracked in America. And whoever does it, and it doesn't have to be fair-minded left-wing people, whoever cracks out of precarious workers and the gig economy, whoever yeah. actually really unionizes those folks in mass is gonna have a real political army to wield. 
that's but you already talked about this last second no no no. and it's it's interesting well it does lead into our our next topic but um in new york for instance the taxi workers have organized very well um i mean and there's a suicide epidemic right now because the medallion uh, prices have gone down so much the values that they've uh, blocked bridges this is just a couple of months ago um across new york city just to amplify and it's i think it's um we're facing a different type of labor crisis. So um, we're in the middle of a pandemic, uh, what I believe is global, de- you know, global Great Depression 2.0. And the fifth richest person in Congress, Senator Mark Warner, not only is he out of touch, he doesn't get why Americans need both <laughs> direct payments and expanded unemployment. This coming from a guy who is worth over $90 million. All right, this gets back to the point. Like, what is going on with Congress? If that is like kind of the basis of the Republican Party. Uh, What path do we have, guys? I mean, I'm going to start with Rep. Rab because you are in a house full of a bunch of well-paid lawmakers uh, because you guys, you know, in in Pennsylvania can take unlimited money from who knows where. Well, I mean, the bigger issue is, you know, we have folks who are fabulously wealthy, whether they receive a a salary for full-time legislative work when we don't have a full-time legislative agenda. Um, They also benefit from legalized bribery because you could buy someone a Tesla. And as long as we disclose it, it's legit. It's only bribery if you don't disclose it. It, it, Um, Is it, does that include like foreign money too? No, No. can't take, no, no. Can't take foreign money. Can't take take corporate (laughs) money, but um, you can take money up to a hundred dollars cash you can take any gifts, um, uh, but you have to disclose over a certain amount. But there's no limit to what you can accept his gifts from it, pretty much anybody other than a registered lobbyist. And um, these, uh, a lot of uh, my colleagues make more money on their side gigs than they do as leg- full-time legislators, which is problematic, right? But you, your point about Warner is, you know, Republicans don't have a monopoly on uh, corporate-minded uh, representation and extraordinary wealth, right? So when uh, folks are saying we need more working-class folk running who are viable candidates and running with progressive values, that's really important. I mean, that's the type of uh, diversity of lived experience that will have a huge impact. And just as an example, and I don't know if I've done this before, but <laughs> you can do it on any level, whether it's class or gender or sexual orientation, but uh, my first boss in, in D.C. was uh, Senator Carol Mosley Braun, mm-hmm. and she was the first black woman senator. She showed up to the Senate floor in a pantsuit, and they're like, uh, Senator, you can't be here. And she's like, excuse me? She's like, oh, you know, women can't wear pants. They have to wear skirts or dresses. And she just gave them a Chicago look like, you kidding me? <laughs> you know I'm not leaving this floor. And the rule changed forever. But if there's only men there, only cisgender straight men, you're not going to have that issue. But we should, I mean, we should note that the most alpha males, the most masculine men back in the day wore high heels, uh, wigs, uh, tight pants, uh, and uh, makeup. And these were the, uh, the founding fathers, right? So even when we look at, you know, what are considered, uh, you know, uh, social norms, they change, but they only change if we, we push them by making sure we have the type of representation we need. So I don't care that Mark Warner has a D behind his name. If, if his interests are more aligned with the elite and, and, and corporatism, then, you know, that, that is a bigger issue. So I have, I have a radical idea. I know Jimmy Dore likes to throw out radical ideas and host you. <laughs> yeah. I have a radical idea. What if labor only supported Democrats who had a labor background? Ron, do you think that would be a, a way for us? I mean, getting that accomplished is a whole other thing, but but I mean, there's so much, I think the Democratic Party has gotten used to using labor. Even mm-hmm. Democratic lawmakers who have been uh, vocally opposed to some areas of labor, whether it's the gig economy, you know, uh, being supportive of, of Ubers and Lyfts and, and, or big tech or the monopolies, but um, if instead of just collecting checks from labor, because you know if, if you're a governor, uh, the labor the unions have to negotiate with the governor on their budget or whatever it is. Um, so so it's becoming a bartering situation. Instead of that, what if labor was just like, all right, from now on we're only we're only supporting folks who have a labor background, like are members of a union. Which, by the way, uh, I would. I think not it's be. a great idea. 
I, you know, I think treating yourself as a constituency rather than as a, a tool will make you more of a constituency and less of a tool. Uh, I do think that people like me uh, are part of the problem, um, which is that, you know, we're thinking of unions as these sort of beautiful, pure things, and that is absolutely not the case. You know, uh, we have some great people maybe coming up to even to take power, uh, but no, the interests of management at labor and the interest of labor at labor are often not aligned. And you saw this, I would say, in 2016 in a very harsh way in which many, many unions who overwhelmingly wanted to support Bernie Sanders, who was an extremely pro-labor candidate, found the presidents of their union in smoke-filled rooms deciding to back Hillary Clinton. And I think sowing that mistrust is, is why the Koch brothers' story of maybe unions are bad, maybe you need a right to work is so sticky with working people of this country. Working people, a lot of them don't want a union. And I think that cultural uh, problem is at the heart of, of what we're talking about. And not to mention that unions, of course, are weaker. So even if there was an aspect of unionizing, how many how many gig workers are across this would love to be part of a union, but don't have that that opportunity to do so because of these attacks by the Koch brothers. And, 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 and how about a a a, a living wage, uh, irrespective of unionization or not? I, I've mm -hmm. um, I re I introduced a bill late this past term to extend the the. Uh, a living wage to incarcerated workers, gig yeah. workers, and workers with severe intellectual disabilities. And you know, the starting wage for uh, uh, an incarcerated worker in the state prison in Pennsylvania is 19 cents an hour. And that's in a public Shocking. prison? That is in, yeah, we only have uh, government run prisons uh, on the state level. Um, and so that will remain, I, I hope, uh, into the next administration in two years. Okay, so on this note, um, you know we're, we're clearly facing a crisis of capitalism and extraordinary monopoly power and exploitation of workers and people, and and you know we we know the crisis that we're in. Um, according to a recent survey, despite many partisan disagreements that exist, right, mm -hmm. Americans of all political affiliations think that Joe Biden should not appoint a corporate cabinet. This is amazing to me because we are, we were born out of capitalism. Everything is free market, free market, free market. Unions are horrible. And yet at the same time, the same Americans, many of the same Americans who, who criticize unions and think that we're all communists gonna take over and terrorize the country are against corporate takeover of their government. Um, Rep Rab, I, I, I know you could probably pull some history here. <laughs> what are your thoughts? A little bit. Um, so, I mean, Look, the, the reality is uh, there's capitalism in China, there's capitalism in the US, there's capitalism in Ireland, there's capitalism in Scandinavia. There are different forms. Same with democracy. There are different representations of, of participatory democracy in different societies. But um, there are hardcore democratic uh, corporatists who don't believe in the free market system because they know it, it never existed, right? That's, that's a fiction, it didn't exist. But they believe in diverse uh, capitalism, which is still capitalism, it just promotes consumerism and inclusion in a capitalist state. Now there's a difference between saying, I'm pro-capitalist and I'm pro-market-based uh, economy. We've had market-based economies for millennia. It's based, the basis of trade. There's nothing inherently wrong or exploitative about that. Once it's exploitative and once it concentrates capital with the elite um, to the exclusion of everyone else, that's when it becomes what we, are what we are experiencing now. And one of the issues with capitalism is not in crisis. Capitalism is crisis, right? Number one. And number two, well <laughs> this is how it's supposed to work. And that is, it does, capitalism, its defect in it, from some people's perspective is that it doesn't create more capitalists. So if you don't have, if you have assets that don't um, gain in value, then you can't create wealth. And if you don't have wealth, you can't create more wealth, which is what capital is. Capital is wealth that creates more wealth. So the vast majority of Americans will never be capitalists because they will never actually get close to a capitalist reality and have wealth, whether it's a, you know, a home, um, a business, um, a, a 501, uh, not a 501c, a 401k, right? They won't have any of those things, but they can consume and they can buy things that look like them, made by them. 
sort of, but they're actually not, they're not building, they're not part of the future. They're not part of any kind of shared prosperity because that's not what capitalism uh, bears out. And the inverse, of course, is that you're in debt, which fuels those who do have access to the wealth or are part of the wealth structures. Arun, uh, you're in a socialist. Yeah. <laughs> tell us, tell us. You're just like ready to go. No, I, I just, I, you know, I think the most important thing you said and to bring us to the present tense as in like tonight and last night is that this is bipartisan right now. And actually the person who I see in the news talking about this is Tucker Carlson. I see him at the every night, you know, after he's done, you know, hating on immigrants and whoever else, by the time he gets to the end, he then talks about corporations that are out of control and that are capturing this government and that are capturing Biden's cabinet. And you're like, damn, that is some sticky stuff right there. You know, like that is some really nice frosting on what's otherwise a xenophobic, horrible nativist cake. And, uh, it, it scares me because whoever really grabs on this is going to find a long-term political message, not just 2022. Right. It's not that, you know, we, we've said this on the show before, it's not so much that we're scared of just the Tucker Carlson's, it's the movement that they're building because the movement is what's, what's scary. You, it's hard to disassemble a movement once it's been formed. And they'll just bring in these people who aren't likely voters now. Again, the people who Democrats don't know how to get, non-voters, less likely voters, the people who Trump managed to turn out and you know, keep shocking pollsters over and over again. I want to end on the, um, the topic of the week, which uh, <laughs> the trolls are out right now. Uh, the topic of whether or not we should bring Medicare for all to a floor vote in exchange for Nancy Pelosi's voter, vote as speaker. And, and you know, we're, we're talking about the, the controversy over um, fighting with this. Let's just be very clear. It wasn't like pressuring the squad as our allies. It was, it was calling them shills <laughs> for not doing so. Yeah, yeah, Rep. Rab, you're in an institution. Uh, I think you're the perfect person to ask because you're probably the most progressive, if not one of the most progressive, um, or vice versa, one of the most progressive, if not the most progressive uh, lawmaker in Pennsylvania right now. And you're still in an institution in which you're definitely outnumbered. Uh, and, and there's a lot of money that <laughs> is flowing in all different directions. Can you just kind of break down how like leverage in a power structure in an institution works, like what you need to do to be able to immediately put, to use Medicare for all as leverage against say a speaker position. Well, you know, I believe that uh, organized people uh, always prevail over organized money, right? And that's something that's hard for a lot of people to understand because they say, oh my gosh, these folks have so much money. And if that were true, they'd be a lot more successful wouldn't they? I mean, we, we, think about it. There's so many things that they want to do that they haven't done, right? That would further kind of destroy the, the fabric of our society. They, they've done really bad things consistently, so I'm not trying to short, mm -hmm. shortchange how awful they are. But we have been successful when we mobilize, when we organize en masse. And, uh, you know, we are, we are the majority and we are indomitable when we work together across all kinds of lines. So uh, reminding the people in power that we're the actual power um, is really important. And we've seen the, the benefit and the results of that through, you know, to, uh, 2020 uh, after the killings of Breonna Taylor and, and George Floyd. I personally benefited from getting two bills enacted into state law within 36 days of there being tens of thousands of Pennsylvanians taking to the streets, not just in Philly and Pittsburgh, but in rural areas where there wasn't even a critical mass of black folk. And it scared the hell, um, uh, it scared my colleagues who are not used to that type of accountability and pressure, which was awesome. And I was saying, please, more, more, more. And they're like, who are these people? And like, these folks are the people who are your constituents, actually, so you, get, you need to get to know them. So to your point, um, we have to actually flex our muscle in ways that um, um, influence people in power uh, where otherwise we just are complicit in our silence. And we say, oh, well, you know, they have all the money, they have all the power. But in reality, when we show up at places where we're not wanted and we're not expected with a clear message and, you know, frankly, some ultimatums, it actually works. It actually works. And it's always worked. That has been the norm and not the exception. There's no major like uh, landmark legislation that happened without protest. And so if we say, oh, well, you know, we're done with the marches, 
we're done with protests. Why? Right. <laughs> right. No, no, no. If it works, keep doing it. Um, you know, and I think that's really important because people say, all right, now we've gotten our issues out. So people need to do the right thing. No, that's what accountability, that's what co-governance, you know, looks like where in between election seasons is where the people do the work and hold their electeds accountable. I particularly love it because it makes my job easier as a progressive trying to get folks to move in the right direction, move forward to embracing things that most of my many of my Democratic colleagues believe are unfathomable and can never happen. So, Arun, um, what would be the effective way for the squad to use their leverage against Nancy Pelosi or, or, or what leverage they have um, in pushing for Medicare for all vote? And, and what would we need to do to make sure they were protected? I, the second part, I think I have a better handle on the first, okay. right? Like Congress is a mess. You know, I, you know I, I've got the more, I'm an executive branch guy. The more to the legislative branch, I don't know how anybody even you does in it. The White you know, House. <laughs> all, all respect to you. Um, I, I do think there's smart ways to, you know, to pick your fights and make sure they work. I do know that losing a lot in spectacular ways doesn't seem to get you anywhere. But I think the things that we can do uh, as a movement is <clears throat> is that kind of sustained storytelling when it's not an election. We have to stop fetishizing winning elections and start actually telling the story of why policies work, because people. When it's all of a sudden, when it's political, right? It's like, we're talking about Medicare for all. Should there be a vote? It's now with this incredibly disgusting political thing. If you just ask anyone, no matter how conservative, you know, or, or, or liberal they are, generally they're for Medicare for all. This is, again, a popular program in this country that a lot of people want. When it's not an election, when it's not convenient, we have to be out there talking about why these things work, doing projects in the neighborhoods, making sure that people see what socialism is. So instead of the story being about like, wow, the squad, why aren't you, you know, why aren't you using your leverage against Nancy Pelosi so that you don't have good committee positions and can't speak out anymore and then therefore they don't have voices in Congress anymore. Um, maybe if it was about storytelling in between the elections, as you just said, Arun, and I remember when Obama, uh, the Obama administration, which you were there for, uh, was pushing the messaging and organizing around Obamacare. I mean, they used OFA and they used the rem which later kind of dissipated, but they used this infrastructure that they had built. Story during the collection. Story collection. I remember this yeah. so well. Like they, and then afterwards that kind of went away. <laughs> but, but every person who was going to vote for that had an anecdote to tell. Yeah. So I don't think we should be telling AOC what she should do on the floor. I think we should be giving her amazing stories where she can be like, I'm going to tell you about a person in Arkansas, not just yeah. her own constituents in the Bronx. I'm going to tell you about this person in Florida uh, and make that really resonate home. You know, that, that, that's a good point. You know, the narratives that, that I share, whether it's on the House floor or on social media, and in those rare moments with conservative Republicans when we're actually in the same room pre-pandemic, when you, when you tell a story, a compelling story to connect in good faith, there's nothing else that comes close. It is an ancient medium that we don't use enough. Um, and it, it, it works. Some of my biggest successes have been starting by telling personal stories in ways that bridge the gaps and not further that, that chasm. And um, that's the real work. So maybe it's it's Bernie using his leftover campaign money and AOC using her war chest and and you know maybe some unions like NNU and other unions that support Medicare for all collectively building a fund uh, an advertising campaign and buying ads across the country and 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 educating folks a little bit more about Medicare Let's for all. Not forget one of the greatest things FDR did was actually employ storytellers to tell the stories of people during the depression. He sent folks out tape recorders with film cameras, yep. with still cameras, and the artwork preserves to this day. It's some to of this the day. beautiful yes. stuff we have. Absolutely. My, I have a great-great-grandmother who is an artist, uh, a, a pioneering Black woman from the early 20th century who was paid by WPA to, to put her artwork, to send that mm -hmm. message. They were paid for their treasure. They were paid for their value and skills, and it endures today. When people say, well, you know, it's the private sector that creates the jobs. No, government can create jobs, too. And there's, listen, it created the backbone of the black middle class for almost a half century. Why? Because uh, Richard Nixon was so afraid that black folk were going to be angry and blow up suburbs that he yep. said, well, let's give them a piece of the pie. And that's, you know, it, it, 
That's protest. And, and as uh, Harvey Kay said right beforehand on the previous segment, FDR w- wanted to employ what were potentially going to be the next fascist generation. So he gave them jobs and put them to work and pulled them off the fascist train, which of course was, was the big crisis of the moment. So interesting. Uh, Rep. Rab, 200th District of Pennsylvania, author of The Invisible Capital, Invisible Capital, excuse me. Go check out that book in a really good place to buy books uh, that's not Amazon. And of course, Ron Chowdhury, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, we, we, we won't see you until after the holidays. So maybe we'll do some oh, specials. You're one. welcome to come on. Yeah. Uh, we're going to do some lives with our, our favorite guests. So if you're, if you're down, love to have you on for like a special in between. Absolutely. All right. Happy holidays, everybody. So Be well. All right, we have some shout outs here. Ann Johnson says, Philly Nomiki fans. Okay, well, that's you. Rep Rab, listen to this. Don't leave yet. Rally for Nurses, Tuesday, December 22nd at 12 p.m. noon to 1 p.m., 3401 North Broad Street. We will put that in the info section on YouTube. A group within the larger Temple Health nursing staff is getting screwed on their union negotiations. Thanks, Ann Johnson. Philly fans, rep rap, tell your constituency, Absolutely. go turn out for that. Go for that. Uh, shout out love to Vinny Holiday. What values uh, value is there for progressives in committee chair positions, or is that a waste of leverage? And I think it's important. To, rep rap, don't go away. Come on, tell us. You yeah, know. Right. <laughs> that, that's how you move legislation is being a committee chair. I mean, I know in, in the minority because we don't have chairs. It's the Republicans, and only the people who are the majority chairs or in Congress, the chairs can you know, can can move bills. It's five times more likely in, in my state legislature for a Republican to get a bill considered in committee. If it doesn't get it considered in committee, it, it doesn't move. So that's really, really important. It's not just being able to speak on the House floor or this or that. It's actually having institutional power by running uh, an influential committee and being able to decide what bills are considered. Very important. And even if there is a Democratic committee chair, like in Congress, where um, they do actually, I mean, if you, AOC is so powerful in her voice and, and actually everybody in the squad is, is so when they, they, you know, Katie Porter with her, her takedowns, um, they may not get called on if they take off their chair. Absolutely. This is the game. You don't want to see these viral moments. I mean, what's the point of having people in Congress if they can't speak when they're in Congress and push when they're in Congress? And I mean, otherwise, they'll be like us. They'll be YouTube hosts on the outside. (laughs) Everyone has a role, Nomi. Yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) All right. Last shout out today, I think. uh, Prairie Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska. I get powerful migraines that knock me off my butt regularly, too. Taking a lot of Excedrin helps me function very unhealthy. So just remember to do your cardio to keep your heart strong. This is this is for cold brew. Treat yourself. Actually, caffeine. I mean, there's mixed opinions about this, but I had a really bad migraine yesterday. Uh, just so you know, we didn't have a show, and it was probably the worst one I've ever had. And I get them, you know, semi regularly once a month. So thanks for the love, Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska, and thanks to Harvey K who came on earlier and then joined the chats, <laughs> and Midi Doctors for working the algorithms, and huge thanks to Bob and Orb for keeping the chat room troll free. I know there were some trolls today uh they're probably going to be coming for the next few weeks we unleashed something um, i'm not sure how much of it's real but we'll see all right be well everybody we will see you tomorrow for femme friday right here at 3 p.m the nomi key show in the meantime join our book club 10 free copies the f- the first 10 to join the book club get the first book for free that is how great this is you'll get an extra book uh this month for the first book book club of the month that's at patreon.com slash the nomi key show take care be well we'll see you tomorrow